welcome to the Cover to Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover to Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. This is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. It's estimated that 71% of low-income households experienced at least one civil legal problem in the last year, including problems with health care, housing conditions, disability access, veterans' benefits, and domestic violence. Left unaddressed, these issues represent a significant hurdle to overcome for those in recovery. In criminal cases, legal assistance is a right. However, there's no right to counsel in civil matters, and most low-income Americans are forced to go it alone without legal representation. In October of 2017, St. Vincent Charity Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio, launched a medical legal partnership to address the legal barriers that negatively impact a person's efforts to recover. Here to talk about the program are legal aid attorneys Michael Russell and Jennifer Kinsley, along with Dr. Albana Drishai, who is the medical director of the St. Vincent Charity Psychiatric Emergency Department. We begin today's podcast with Michael Russell sharing how the medical legal partnership between Legal Aid Society of Cleveland and St. Vincent Charity Medical Center came to be. Well, I think St. Vincent's learned about the medical legal partnership model. At uh, Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, we've maintained a medical legal partnership with Metro Health for 15 years now. And they were excited about the possibility of bringing that model and applying it to a behavioral health and addiction medicine context. Um, and in that context, um, the medical legal partnership was, was unique to Ohio in that it was focusing on those areas. Uh, and at the start of our program, solely those areas. Um, and they approached Legal Aid about setting up a program, and through their hard work and the uh, generous um, donations of our funders, including Jones Day Foundation, Mount Sinai Healthcare Foundation, the George Gunn Foundation, and the Peggs Foundation, they were able to secure the funds to set up the program. I ask, what percentage of their patient population struggle with civil legal issues? Well, I, I think it would probably be at least 71%. Um, the, the hospital serves a vulnerable population. We're in downtown Cleveland. And um, with the uh, behavioral health units we serve, so we're dealing with folks that struggle with mental illness and also folks in recovery, um, you know, the, the patient population um, deals with a whole host of legal issues that may be more concentrated within those groups than they are in the general populace. Next, Jennifer Kinsley shares what the most common legal issues their patients deal with. I would say the most common thing that I'm seeing is a lot of custody and visitation issues. So during this period of substance use, either Children and Family Services has taken their children or a grandparent has the children. Some of the questions are, you know, what does my mom have to do to make sure my child's enrolled in school? Some people, you know, will walk in and say, I have no idea where my kids are. I've been using for five years and I don't know. 
Um, so a lot of what we're doing is, um, custody and visitation, just getting a copy of the order and just empowering the patient with where their child is, what their rights are, if they can get visitation and if they can, what they should be doing, um, to paint themselves in the best light to the judge. Because what I hear a lot is the uh, the judge is going to see that I overdosed and is never going to give me my kids back. Um, and I just sit with them and say, well, the judge also knows you're a human. So let's talk about what what we can show the judge. We can show the judge you visited every, you know, Wednesday and Saturday. And these are all the things that you did. Um, and that has been very empowering because knowing that reunification is possible is a great driving force for recovery for a lot of these patients. Um, bankruptcy is also very common. Or just debt management. We give a lot of information and advice on debt management. Um, so in addition to those, we do a lot with public benefits. So um, that's any termination, denial, or reduction in any benefit, or also Social Security overpayments. Um, unfortunately, substance use often comes with some time of incarceration, and if people wrongfully received benefits while they were incarcerated because they didn't think as they were being taken to jail, oh, I should call Social Security and cancel my benefits. I mean, that's probably never happens. Never right? happens. Yeah, sure. Right. And so there's an overpayment that accrues. Mm -hmm. And then when they're released, Social Security is asking that all that money be paid back. So um, we work with that. There's also a big problem with child support causing almost homelessness. So um, wages will be garnished by old child support to the point that the person is walking away with maybe one or $200 a month and they can't pay rent. So uh, we've been filing child support modifications to say these people can't sustain daily obligations because of this child support um, obligation. And, and then there's usually an adjustment made by child support of what's owed. So... Um, a lot of those family law issues are common. Um, occasionally there's a divorce, um, mainly because there's someone who's using and someone who is not, or someone who is um, encouraging the other person to use who wants to be in recovery. So um, that is something that we work through. Um, we also have a veterans benefits section at Legal Aid. So in some cases, if the individual is a veteran, um, we can evaluate if their discharge status may have been impacted by mental health or substance use and um, seek a discharge upgrade if that's appropriate. Dr. Drishai shares why it's so important to address legal problems along with a patient's medical issues. In our population, mental illness has a prevalence of nearly 17%. For people that are well off, they have resources, we can manage mental illness. We can just have it as a chronic illness. It doesn't have to impact many areas of life. But as he mentioned, um, we live in an underprivileged area. So it is very difficult for patients to have the resources and to know how to navigate um, being stable with mental illness. There is something that's called a downward social drift. When patients don't have the resources, don't have the medication, they they really suffer from mental illness. What does that mean? They lose family ties, they lose jobs, they lose housing. So these are the pockets that we see these um, legal needs to be met. These are also patients that don't have the knowledge to inquire about how to 
um, you know, overcome these kind of losses. So this is the kind of patient population that we deal with. And this is why it's important, not just for myself to determine what medical needs they have, but to go a step over beyond and see what legal things can we do to really um, make sure that their lives are a little more stable and they can live with a mental illness, considering how prevalent it is. Without the service, what happens pretty much is people just keep coming back. You see the same patients come back. I prescribed medication. Why didn't you feel it? I lost it in a shelter. Somebody stole it. So when we invest in making these needs met, what happens is they don't show up. <laughs> and we're like, oh, my God, I wonder how they're doing. Hopefully they're doing well. And the the less they stay you know, out of the ERs, we trust that they're stable. Less business is better. <laughs> Right? Right. Yeah. We want them to be well. We don't want them to be in the ER. Yours for, for illness. Michael talked about how the medical and legal teams learn to collaborate. Well, with St. Vincent's, we're lucky to have a very hardworking and dedicated social work team. And uh, for patients that come into the behavioral health units, everyone sees a social worker. And we've worked with social work to develop a, um, a screening tool that allows them to screen for not only the issues that they want to spot as social workers, but also to um, screen for legal issues that may present themselves. And um, they use that as sort of a, a catch-all to make sure that they're at intake, that they're getting all the information from their patients that they need in order to, to best serve them. And that's both medically or, or um, legally at this point. Um, and throughout our partnership for the last year, we've also provided trainings to providers uh, and social workers, not only on how the program works, how to make referrals, but also on common legal, legal questions. For instance, we had a training on uh, basic landlord-tenant issues so that the social work team could sort of understand the basics of what it is a lot of the patients are dealing with. Now, we don't want uh, providers, and that's social workers or nurses or doctors, to really feel like they're responsible for identif identifying a discrete legal issue before they make a referral to the medical legal partnership. We really want them, uh, we want this to be a, uh, an open process. So our message whenever we train providers is when in doubt, make a referral. Because uh, when we receive a referral and we have a client, we screen for every legal issue that we can possibly think of. So many cases, they'll identify an issue, let's say a housing issue, and they'll refer the patient to us. And yes, there's a housing issue, but there's also maybe a benefits issue or a utilities issue or social security issues. So many of our clients, we open multiple cases in order to assist them when the beginning, at the beginning stages, uh, it was just one issue that uh, brought them to us in the first place. Next, we hear the story of a patient who was the victim of identity theft. The patient came to the emergency room, the psychiatric emergency room, in a state of crisis. She was depressed. She couldn't deal with whatever was happening. And I, I managed to deal with her depression, her, her acute anxiety, but with exploring further like what her main stressors were, I saw this was a case to be handled by the legal team. And I was surprised delightfully how open she was to this and how initially, of course, they're like, no, I don't have money. I can't afford that. <laughs> but they're, to tell them it's free, you just feel like it's such a gift to them. So walk us through this. What, what happened yeah. with this case? Well, it's a great example of what we were just talking about, where one legal issue sort of leads to another and mm -hmm. to another. Um, Dr. Deshai brought the patient to our program, and it was pretty early on after we started in October 2017. Mm -hmm. um, and um, initially, the um, patient was most concerned about social, 
Social Security benefits. Uh, she received a notice that her benefits were going to be cut off. She didn't understand why. Mm-hmm. That would, you know, it was per, her primary source of income. So that would, uh, it sort of spun her world out of control. She couldn't make rent. She couldn't um, provide the basics for her family. Yeah, or buy medication to help her maintain stability mm-hmm. with her bipolar depression. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that we found out that the Social Security problem stemmed from a, um, a identity theft issue. And uh, us at Legal Aid, we have uh, some tax attorneys that work in our office. Let me jump in. Sure. So she didn't know that it was identity theft. She knew that her benefits were being cut off, and you discovered it was identity theft? Is that how that worked? Well, I I don't think she would have um, put it in those words. She knew that something was wrong. She was accused (laughs) of making money she didn't earn. Yeah, okay. Um, And so a Social Security issue became a housing issue, became an identity theft issue, and became a tax issue. Mm -hmm. So through the Medical Legal Partnership, um, not only do the patients have access to uh, Ms. Kinsley and I, and we have our own expertise, but to all the legal expertise at Legal Aid. And we have uh, attorneys who specialize in all manner of areas. For instance, we have uh, tax attorneys. So uh, we opened up a tax case for her that's being handled right now. Hmm. Okay. In addition to the Social Security Issue. Jennifer shared another client story, this one involving bankruptcy. One of my first uh, intakes with him was a client who uh, we were doing the intake. She said she needed help with a bankruptcy. She was feeling really overwhelmed by her debt. Um, and by the time we had completed the legal intake, um, the legal checkup, which we evaluate every area of service we provide and see how that patient is doing in each of those areas. And we opened up five cases for her for legal issues she didn't even knew she had. She was just making statements like, this is my food stamp amount. And we were looking at each other. That's not right. She's not getting enough. Um, And so in the course of that one short 30-minute meeting, we identified five legal needs for a patient who was working so hard in the Rosary Hall program um, towards recovery. And I realized what a difference this program could make in that first intake. I ask Michael how many cases they've handled since the program began. So I I think we've received over 130 referrals. Out of those referrals, I think we have over 50 unique clients and over 70 uh, different cases. Um, so we've, we've been able to see quite a lot of folks we've received multiple referrals a week. Um, and we've been really satisfied with, um, our partners at St. Vincent because they've hold, they've, they've embraced the program. Mm -hmm. You know, a medical legal partnership doesn't work when you don't have buy-in from the providers because it's those providers that are making the referrals who are advertising the program to their patients. And we've been quite lucky at St. Vincent where, um, you know, in just a year's time, we've developed a pretty robust program. Sure. In the past year, I'm sure you had uh, some growing pains. What are some of the the things, the lessons learned that along the way for the next organization that maybe wants to adopt this kind of program where you would advise them, hey, um, here's some things that we might have tweaked just a little bit. Are there any of those? Well, it's, it's hard to predict how things are going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly there's um, issues with logistics, just setting up a referral program, especially in a hospital when you're dealing with multiple departments, different providers, different levels of providers. Um, that can take time. And it took time in our case, no, no more time than it should have, I think. But it does take time, and you figure out what works and what doesn't. 
and you just sort of have to troubleshoot. Um, in dealing with the population that we deal with, you know, there's issues with maintaining client contact. Uh, we're dealing with a um, mm, largely transient, yeah. transient population. Mm. And we're also dealing with folks in um, addiction recovery. So we have issues where if, if they're discharged into a residential treatment program, there's issues with communication, with transportation, all sorts of things. So it's, it, it's hard to say in advance what are the things you're going to find and what are the things you're going to struggle with. Um, thankfully, I don't think we've, we've struggled too much with anything here in this program. It took some time to set up, but that's to be expected. Um, and we've been happy with the results. Next, Michael puts the program in perspective. A lot of healthcare providers especially get nervous when they hear uh, about lawyers being in their hospitals. But mm. um, a lawyer can make a real difference in uh, a person's life. It can be, they can make a real difference in their wellness and their health. You know, if somebody's worried about being evicted, it's hard to concentrate on their recovery. If someone can't keep the lights on, um, you know, it, 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 it affects a whole uh, host of issues. Um, and uh, having uh, an advocate um, available to assist with these issues um, can allow a patient to really concentrate on their health and their treatment and, and um, following their doctor's orders so that they can get well and prosper. This Cover 2 podcast is sponsored by Relink.org. Relink.org is an online research tool that allows you to quickly locate addiction recovery and reentry resources in your area. It includes everything from treatment to housing and employment. Go to Relink.org today to find services or add a resource for free. With Relink.org, help is just three clicks away. Jennifer shared what led her to work at the MDL and talks about one of her first cases. I was actually a prosecutor for the city of Cleveland, um, and my work with the specialized dockets, the drug courts, the human trafficking dockets, the veterans treatment courts, um, highlighted to me the need to provide services, especially legal services, to um, individuals before the criminal justice system was involved um, because I thought it was unfortunate that we had to wait for them to have a felony or a serious misdemeanor before we started connecting them with agencies who could help them. So um, when I saw this position posted, I knew that this was a position that I wanted. Um, I went after it, and I came to Legal Aid especially for this program. Wow. So you had exposure to some of the drug courts here in Cuyahoga County? I did. In Cleveland Municipal Court, I was a prosecutor. And so we rotate through every courtroom for three months at a time. So that gave me the opportunity to be in drug court for three months, be in human trafficking court for three months, and so on through all the specialized dockets. Um, and, And outside of those dockets, we really didn't see... Uh, the needs of these populations. We would only see, uh, you know, essentially the person in court. And once we had resolved their legal issue, that was the end of it. And then once I was involved in these specialized dockets and seeing all the problems that come along with these various populations, I realized that there was a major gap. Um, And so I wanted to use my experience and my legal background to move forward with this population outside of being criminally prosecuted. 
The attorneys also keep regular office hours, as Jennifer explains. I'm doing an office hours program at Rosary Hall, which means that every Monday um, for about an hour and a half, I'm sitting upstairs as treatment ends and starts. So there's a gap between two IOP programs. And I just sit upstairs in the room right outside. And if anyone wants to come and talk to me, um, I give them 15 to 30 minutes. We close the door and we evaluate them for legal needs. So um, I'm addressing the the initial issue that um, this population has of being transient. So the phone number that they gave before, they might have had to turn it off because they don't want people contacting them anymore as they journey on their road to recovery. Um, some of them have changed homes a number of times or don't want whoever's at that address to see that they're working with legal aid. So it's hard um, to establish a consistent working relationship um, or it was until we started this program. And now they just walk in and see me. And if they want to see me next week, they make an appointment to see me during office hours the very next week. Well, they're big problems for someone to take on by themselves. But um, I think when we team up with the patient, it it immediately lessens the burden of these problems because a lot, like, for example, public benefits, um, if we send a notice that the person is represented and that this food stamp amount is wrong, uh, Job and Family Services is much quicker to evaluate what's going on and say, okay, there's an attorney working with this person. Let's make sure everything's accurate. Oh, so you um, get some discretion because of that. Right. Yeah. Yes. And um, another type of case I didn't mention is nursing home discharge, improper nursing home discharge. And we found here at St. Vincent that some of our social workers are able to say after a discharge happens, well, we have two legal aid attorneys here and we'll have them follow up with the client and you'll hear from them. And nursing homes have taken back the patient um, because they know that what they did was wrong, but they didn't think anyone would reach out to an attorney. But now that we're here and we're embedded, um, things like that aren't happening because we're not allowing them to happen. I mean, it's been, it's, it's been a great experience. Um, and, you know, as we move through and we find something that might be a barrier, um, we're trying to break through it. So we initially thought we had a barrier with um, uh, residential treatment facilities because they're so strict on um, accessing the people who are inside. And so we had a meeting here at St. Vincent and we brought the seven most commonly referred to residential treatment facilities from the inpatient detox program. And we said, let's talk. How can we get in? How can we access these patients? How can we advocate for them? Because an eviction is not going to wait the 30, 60, 90 days that they're there with you. We need to be able to um, work with them. And every single facility has a working relationship with us now. So um, there are definitely barriers, but we've been breaking through them, and um, it's been a great success. Jennifer, what else should people know about the program? Uh, we're here for everybody. So we accept up to 200% of the federal poverty guideline. So we do an intake. We tell the staff here, don't worry about how much they make or where they live or anything like that. Let us worry about that. Um, so we bring them in, we fill out, we ask them very simple questions about, do they have a bank account? Do they have money in the bank account? At the end of that, our intake system generates what percent of the federal poverty guideline they're at. And, um, we keep it moving. We don't ask them to bring in all types of proof of their income. People just don't have it. Um, so we, we run through a list of questions and we get moving, 
a totally judgment-free zone. Like I said before, um, you know, I need to know when you last used, because if I'm going to be helping you, um, I need to know. And that's what I say. And I establish honesty, you know, I'm, I'm going to trust you. Um, but I, I think it's rare also to be working with two attorneys who know relapse happens. Next, Jennifer talks about how her clients reach out to her any time of the day or night with their concerns because their doors are always open. You know, crisis happens. And, and Mike and I have both had clients who call us at strange hours and, and say, you know, I'm going to relapse. Tomorrow's the 4th of July and I don't trust myself. We are their attorney. Um, but we've established this trust and we're connected with St. Vincent and we tell them, all right, we'll call Rosary Hall. Like they'll take you back. You can go back. Um, but they reach out to you. Mm-hmm. You would think they, you know, peer recovery coach or their mm-hmm. sponsor or, but to reach out to you, that, I mean, that says something. Right. And I think they're worried about judgment because they um, don't want to tell someone so embedded in um, their recovery, like, like their counselor, what has happened. And um, we're here usually to tell them that's what they're here for. Hmm. Um, and so initially it was kind of jarring to me that people were so comfortable that they would tell me these things because I didn't know, you know, what's the right thing to say in this very moment. Um, so thankfully we have this partner of St. Vincent who I went to and said, what, what do I say in this moment? And they said, tell them our doors are always open. And that has been um, key for so many patients to just know that they can go back and they'll start their journey all over again. Um, and, and that has really shown me how deeply ingrained this program is that they, they trust us and they want to keep working towards their legal issues uh, because that's driving them towards recovery to know that when they're ready – they're going to have food stamps. They're going to have their SSI benefits. They're going to have the income they need to not need to sell drugs or prostitute or whatever life they were leading before this. Um, and, you know, the criminal record ceiling has been huge for this population um, because they get a whole new chance at housing and employment, um, you know, before we talk to them, they usually think, yeah, I have a criminal record. Do you know that it's possible you could say you don't? Like we can, we can go into court and, you know, especially if you're involved in any sort of treatment program, the court is very inclined to seal your record if you're eligible. And on October 31st, the law changed in Ohio and record sealing is major now. There's so many uh, convictions that can be sealed. So, Um, we just don't want anyone to think there's a barrier or that for any reason they're not eligible, or they may even think I don't have a legal problem. Uh, most people do, and they may not even notice it. And that's why we want to sit down and talk to them and make sure that every area that legal aid practices, they're covered. And if it's something, um, that we don't cover, we're going to refer you to someone who does. So I think... It's a fantastic program. Our doors are open hospital-wide now, um, and especially um, to those who don't think they need us is probably the ones who need us the most. Well, I want to thank you for your time today, Jennifer. This was really, really enlightening. Great. 
appreciate it. Thank you. Joining me today has been legal aid attorneys Michael Russell and Jennifer Kinsley, along with Dr. Albana Drashai, who is the medical director of St. Vincent Charities Psychiatric Emergency Department. They've talked about the Medical Legal Partnership, which was launched in 2017, to help their clients with legal barriers that have negatively impacted a person's health. To learn more about this program or contact its originators, please go to cover2.org. I'd like to thank all our guests today for joining me to talk about this important topic. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.